Hey folks, welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Sergeant Barrett. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we will be interviewing teammates from around the base and learning about them and their keys to success. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, the 18th Air Force Command Chief, Chief Simpson. Chief, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. Uh, we got in here today uh, pretty early, flew in on a mill air flight, which is always nice because you don't have to battle the TSA lines and do uh, changeovers at different airlines because, you know, there's no direct flights to Spokane, Washington. So yeah. um, it's nice to be able to get that mill air flight and uh, and get directly here. And then luckily we're guaranteed we're going to have a mill air flight back home. So we're doing well. We're excited to be here for the for the ninety um, second Air Refueling Wing Change of Command, and uh, and certainly excited to have the opportunity to sit down with you and and have a conversation about uh, what we think success looks like, what's going on in the world, whatever, wherever you want to take this conversation. Sure. So. How did the change of command go today? Well, we didn't do the change of command yet. Change, okay. Change of command is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. I yeah. So we're going to get up really early tomorrow and we're going to do that. And then we're going to jump on a plane and head back. But I'm sure it'll be successful. You know, right now it's a little bit different how we're doing change of commands across the Air Force. is not, you know, this isn't your daddy's change of command. Right. <laughs> or, or the change of command we were used to coming coming into the Air Force. It's a, it's a little bit more antiseptic. It's a little bit more hands-off. Obviously very focused on... Um, on uh, digital media is ex- extremely important to get it out to the, the masses because you're not going to have as many people there. Um, but really what it's about is showing that the the command has been turned over to a new leader, in this case, um, Colonel Bentley. It's important that the that everybody sees that and understands, hey, this is who we got to get behind now and this is who we're going to follow and this is what they're about You know, when they have their time to speak. But you know, I wish we could do more. I'm a big fan of watching the guide on actually be passed, and that's one of the things right now they're kind of concerned about, so we're not seeing that. But we'll get back to those days. We'll get back yeah. to that time when, when we kind of get out of this uh, this COVID environment, so hopefully soon. You know, and that is unfortunate because, um, believe it or not, one of the things I do enjoy watching is those change of commands. I like the tradition and the symbolism of passing that, that guide on from one commander off to the next. Um, so it is it is kind of unfortunate that we can't watch that kind of stuff happening you know um it's i think it's one thing we um as i've gone through in my career and i'm I'm, i just hit 28 years in the air force uh earlier in the month and one of the things i think we have kind of put on the back burner is tradition things like that or Mm -hmm. or heritage things like that and that change of command is one of them promotion ceremonies are another one i've always been a big fan of the big promotion ceremonies where we get up people in front of their entire wing or their entire organization and recognize the hard work that they've done. Same thing for awards, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's Air Force balls or, you know, just anything, anything that celebrates the heritage of being in the military, being in the Air Force and being kind of part of this unique subculture of American society that we mm-hmm. belong to, which is really a great big family. Um, the more we can do those sorts of things, uh, the better it is. So I hope I hope we get back to doing a lot more of those things because we need them. We need them to keep our culture strong. Do you, do you think we were slipping away from that a little bit before all this yeah, COVID yeah. stuff hit? Yeah, I do. So do you think the other services are maybe a little better at keeping their traditions in a way than we are? Well, you know that, and isn't that it's it's they have a lot more years to be able to to fall back on. So right. 
in, in most cases. Um, obviously, the Space Force can't now. So the Space Force is the new kids on the block. So <laughs> they've got to create some traditions and, and heritage of their own. But, yeah, I do. I think we were sliding away from it. I mean, there was often times. And maybe you could call me kind of old school and, and stuck in my ways a little bit. But that's okay. I'm fine with that. But, you know, things like, well, we're going to do our uh, our awards banquet at our annual awards banquet. We're just going to be in ABUs and, or, well, OCPs now primarily. And we're going to do it at lunch or we're going to do it in the afternoon on a Friday. And it's not a big thing. That is a big thing. It's a really big thing. It's right. important to recognize not only the people who won, but the, the nominees um, and recognize the folks that got them there because they're largely in attendance for it, whether they're family or they're their peers. Um, that's a that's an important thing to do and, and to, to have and to see and celebrate. And so um, I think we have to concentrate on preserving those things. Um, and hopefully we do. I agree. I agree. Um, I had a briefing from uh, the Profession of Arms Center of Ex- Excellence, which pays. If oh, yeah. Know what that yeah. is back when they were at Randolph, though, when I was mm-hmm. down at Lackland. And um, the, there was a TI that was working over there, came in, and he was just talking about how, you know, you ask a Marine, what do you do? They don't tell you, oh, I'm a this MOS or that MOS. They say I'm, I'm a Marine. Absolutely right. And how we don't do that as airmen. So ever since then, I try, I try to do that. I try to say, oh, I'm an airman. Or I'm, at least I'm in the Air Force and, and – because I, I also agree with you that I think those traditions, or at least having some pride in the fact that you, you're in the Air Force and that's what you do, comes above everything else. Um, so I, I also hope that we get back to those those traditions. And those yeah, we tend to align ourselves functionally. Yes. Versus service alignment. Yeah. Um, and and those I think that identifying yourself, you get, you know, you get the that airman tape. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you get. That's true. Yeah. You don't get function badges first. You yeah. get the airman tape. You get your name tape. Those are the first things you get. And so yeah. we got to think about that. I'm, a, I'm an airman first. You're always an airman first. And, and when you are, fu- you know, you think about yourself functionally, you may not always be that function. We may ask you to go do something else. The Air Force may say, hey, we, you've done a great job here. Now we need you to do a great job here. Mm-hmm. So what were you the whole time? You were an airman the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes we need to think of it in those terms. I agree. Uh, one of the things that used to really frustrate me, uh, so I did, I did time down at Lackland as a, as a Seaburn instructor for BMT. And uh, I used to get really frustrated when I would hear other people um, out of the beast and we were teaching, say, uh, why do we got to do this? Why are we teaching these airmen this? We're not in the army. We, we shouldn't be teaching them how to fight hand-to-hand combat and all this other stuff. And I used to get frustrated because, you know, that's not true anymore. I've seen if you're wearing your Seaburn. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm wearing it. <laughs> no, you're, uh, were you wearing your duty identifier? Oh, no, I, I, um, I, don't, I don't wear that as a CAA. Yeah, you know what? I started wearing mine. You did? Okay. Yeah, I, wanna, I want people to know that there's... There's other things you can do. At the core, you know, I, yeah. I was a Seaburn guy. Yeah. I've gone on and yeah. done different things, but I want people to know that uh, there's other things you can go do out there, and but still be proud of what you did before. Um, so we were just talking about this on the plane on the way in. With um, we have uh, my boss's uh, General Barrett's new aide, and we were having a discussion about this. About we're talking about multi-skilled airmen and, and agile combat employment and all those kind of things that are hot catchphrases in the Air Force now. But the reality is, is that we need airmen to just be ready, period. And I say that because in, in, you bring up JET and IA tasking. So uh, back in 2013 and 14, I was the 466 AES superintendent, which is the one that is in charge of all the JET and IA airmen in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so I had Western, Southwest, and South Afghanistan, the provinces, and then another unit, the 966, had East and North. And... Um, and I remember distinctly two things about that deployment. One, it was just a great deployment. It was a pure chief deployment. 
Um, but we had services troops who were embedded with special operations teams um, who were there to be cooks. That was their their primary role was to run the kitchens. Um, but the other thing was they provided overwatch and security during the downtimes for those uh, those special operators, wow. which I thought was amazing. I mean, we, arm them up, train them, and we need you to stand a post and do this job because that's what we need right now. Yeah. So the idea that I'm just a this or I'm just a that is wrong. Mm-hmm. You're just an airman is what you are. Right. I never even really put just in front of it. You're an airman, and as an airman, we're going to ask you to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We also, I had one particular time, I went out to a place called Lashkar Gah, and we had six airmen out there, uh, and they were all trans- transportation airmen. Either they were either vehicle operators or they were vehicle mechanics. And uh, they were there with the Marines, uh, and then there was also British Marines who provided the perimeter security for the FOB. But the place where they actually did, they were doing advising to the Afghan National Police, was actually about a click and a half away, right? Mm-hmm. So you had to do a ground movement to get over there, and it was a straight foot patrol. And so they called, you know, they, I got in and they said, hey, you're going to go with us on the foot patrol tomorrow to go over to the compound where we do train? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. So we get kitted up. We get out there and uh, and they're all formed up, getting ready to receive the re- patrol order for the movement. And a tech sergeant named Vasquez, Air Force vehicle operator, stands up and gives the patrol order to a bunch of Marines as we're going to do this ground movement. Okay. And I looked at the lieutenant colonel Marine there and I said, sir, you got to you got an airman giving that patroller because he's the he's the sharpest guy we got here. He's the been here the longest on the ground. He knows what's going on, and I was so struck by that. It was so powerful. But you know, this is different than what we asked them to do. Mm-hmm. But he did it, and he did it really well. That guy went on to be a first sergeant too. When he left out of there, he made master sergeant. He became a first sergeant. Now this so. is gonna be an odd question. Was he a little bit of a shorter guy? Yeah. Okay, I know him. I went to base training with him. No way. I did. Yeah, uh, Vasquez. I mean, there might be more than one, but um, he actually has a. Purple Heart, I want to say. Oh, wow. Um, I ran into him again at, when I was at Milton Hall. I want to say he was at Lake and Heath, and he was telling me about it. I think you when they when we started doing the, the first jet taskings with the convoy and all that, he was one of the ones that mm. went out and did that. I want to say he's got a Purple Heart. So, and yes, Might he, be the same a, guy. Yeah, he was great in basic, and, and we went through the same tech school base together, and, and he's, yeah, he's a hell of a guy. So, that's interesting. Yeah. Small Air Force. It is. Gets okay. smaller the longer you stay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Chief. Uh, well... Believe it or not, I don't know if you remember this, but I've known you for a while. Yeah. We met back in 2004 yep. uh, at an NBC cell TDY. I want to say you were a staff or a tech sergeant at the time. I can't remember. 2004? Mm-hmm. I would have been a tech. Okay. And uh, so I know a little bit about you, but I would like for oh the, my rest gosh. The, I the rest of these. Please uh, don't tell those. those. <laughs> the rest of the, the <laughs> podcast listeners to know who Chief Simpson is and where he came from and, and your story. So I'm I'm a uh, a little skinny kid from uh, St. Charles, Missouri. So I was born in St. Charles, Missouri, which is uh, a town outside of it's the next county outside of St. Louis. And then um, I was born there, but I actually was raised in Warrenton, Missouri, which is 60 miles west on I-70 of St. Louis, a farm community outside of, uh, another county over. And, uh, and so I, I was raised there until I was about uh, in seventh or eighth grade, and then I moved back into St. Charles with my mom. My parents had been divorced. Um, a little bit before that, a couple years prior to that. And we moved into St. Charles for her job and uh, went to high school there. Um, my goal growing up was to go play for the St. Louis Cardinals. That's all I cared about. Baseball was all I cared about. That's all I did. Um, I barely did my school because I was playing, worried about playing baseball, which was a mistake. Uh, I finished high school and I thought I was going to go be in the majors. And uh, after playing some semi-pro minor league ball, uh, I figured out that uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, uh, those guys are really, really good, and I was not. 
So I made it, and I was kind of at a crossroads. I said, I, I really need to go somewhere where I have opportunity, whether that's school or travel. And, you know, that's something I've always been interested in. One, I always wanted to go to school. And believe it or not, even though I wasn't a good student in high school, I was, I, I was uh, good at understanding. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't good at doing homework. Gotcha. <laughs> and so I wanted, to, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to travel because, you know, I never really got out of Missouri and a little bit of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so... Air Force comes calling. And, and really, but the most important thing was I, what I needed was structure because mm-hmm. I was wildly, wildly undisciplined. Okay. And so structure was the thing that, uh, while I may not have realized it, I did later that that was the thing I craved more than anything. And that's the thing that probably drew me to um, the, the military lifestyle was the structure piece of it. And then also, as I stayed in the Air Force for a while and, and the way we started forming a family, I was a security forces, security policeman back mm-hmm. then when I first came in. I loved it. And I went over to England, uh, and uh, I was pretty good at being a security policeman, but I was really bad at being an airman. Okay. And there's more to that, which will I'll feed into some of the things you want to talk about later. But um, so eventually, I, I cross trained out of uh, security police and uh, became a, at that time it was called readiness, and then eventually emergency management. Did a variety of jobs there. I, I worked regular flight jobs, whether it's logistics or ops, and then uh, went down to we opened. Basic trainings, Warrior Week, which, mm-hmm. you, you know, when you went to Beast, we were the, Warrior Week was what started that. Went there and then... Uh, so you were one of the original... The original six. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I've never seen your... your name was on the wall. Yeah, yeah the I name was on the wall, the brick. Yeah. <laughs> there were six of us and uh, that was a really awesome experience. Yeah. Really awesome. And it was kind of one of those forks in the road for me about, mm-hmm. you know, understanding what being in the military was all about mm-hmm. and, and being able to impact people and that sort of thing. And then I started a uh, kind of a rotation between Korea and Florida, went to Kunsan, came back to Herbert Field, or I mean um, Eglin, and I worked in test and evaluation, which was really cool. Take Seaburn equipment out in the field with a couple of airmen, see if you can break it. That's a pretty cool job. Yeah. Um, and then I went back to uh, Kunsan again, which I love. I love Kunsan. It's my favorite assignment in the Air Force, hands down. Um, and then I came back to Florida again, and I went to Herbert Field. And uh, while I was at Herbert Field, um, I worked in the IG on uh, the AFSOC IG team, uh, doing primarily. I started off doing just strictly Seaburn, but then as I made, I made uh, rank. I was uh, doing. Um, I made senior while I was there, so I, they moved me up into the mission support lead. So I kind of covered everything that was mission support. Then I went back to Korea again. I went to Osan and uh, and and hung out there for a year and had a great tour. Probably my best assignment from the standpoint of enjoying the tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being with the people that I had there, uh, a bunch of great folks uh, on that team, and then came back. And so I made chief while I was there, and then that started a whole different route. I, I left the Seaburn world and kind of went into this uh, management leadership track and mm-hmm. was a mission support group chief at Holloman, a squadron superintendent for CE. <clears throat> and then uh, I went over to Interlick, did that, same thing, MSG over there, great assignment. Um, and then I got picked up to be the command chief at, guess where? Kunsan again. Oh, okay. <laughs> then I went back to Kunsan, uh, the best wing level command chief job in the entire Air Force. Um, did that, and then um, then I left there, and I got to go to basic training and, run, and be the chief of basic training, yeah, which is that. amazing. Uh, I, I mean, if you can. There was a string of very fortunate events in my mm-hmm. career, and then uh, I left there because I was asked to come be the command chief of the 93rd AGAO mm-hmm. down at Moody, which is all your TACPs across the U.S. and your oh, combat wow. weather, and then the 820th Base Defense Group. And then while I was there, I got a call to interview for the 18th Air Force and uh, got hired. Um, along the way, I uh, met my wife, who is a career airman as well, 21 years. And she was also 
uh, a military brat growing up. So she, that's all she's known is the military her whole life. Um, she's had an amazing career. Uh, she did all kinds of things. Trish was an MTI and MTL OSI. Um, she worked in finance. She worked in RPA. She did all kinds of stuff. She's got a lot of good stories. Um, and then we have two daughters, Taylor and Alex, uh, 16 and 12 years old who are growing now and our word in our life kind of centers around them. That's where I'm at now. That's how I got to this spot. It's been an amazing ride. I, I, I have no intent of ending it anytime soon. I mean, I'm eventually, I guess I'm going to have to, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> that's going to be someone telling me, okay, you, we don't need you anymore. Get out of here. Uh, I don't have any intent to go because I, I just love being a part of this. I, I came in for opportunity and I stay in for opportunity right. because it still continually presents itself, whether that's getting my, me getting it or my family getting it or being able to present it to someone else. That's kind of what uh, drives me, I guess. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got a little bit of a, of a side question. And this is more just out of my personal curiosity. Sure. Um, I've noticed I noticed that a lot, not many emergency management chiefs have gone the route that you have gone. Yeah. So number one, how did you do it? And number two, <laughs> what made you kind of take that route instead of going? You know, a lot of them will go work at the Magcom and then end up down at Tyndall. Yeah, that's um, all they do. Right. Yeah. And nothing against that at all. But, no. Um, I think I want to say, as far as I've noticed, you're the only one I've noticed that. Has no, no. Gone there's been a route. few. Um, so the how is. Um, Really about persistence. So I mean, they that they when I made it, they had me tagged to go do the same thing. They were going to send me to staff, and I, I was very persistent, and I let this the civil engineer, the CEM of the of the Air Force at that time was Chief Master Sergeant Jerry Lewis. Um, I was very adamant about telling him, listen, I don't want to go sit on the staff. I'm I like dealing with people. I like being in the trenches. I like sucking rubber, you know, with a gas mask and a chem suit on. I just like getting dirty and get my hands dirty. That's how what I enjoy. And I think you have far more opportunity to impact people personally on a more personal level at that. So that's what I wanted to do. And uh, he was able to get me vectored in the right direction to cross flow, to be a, a straight three E triple zero chief. Um, and they almost pulled me back actually, right before I left, I was headed to Holloman to go be the squadron superintendent and, <clears throat> the PACAF um, A7 at that time said was visiting Osan and said, hey, I want you to come fill the, the role at PACAF. And Jerry Lewis was actually there and he stepped in and said, no, he's going to do something else. Oh, wow. And so I was able to go do it from there. And then quite frankly, it's it, once you're out, you're out. <laughs> they, they, they haven't come calling for me to come back. I'll yeah. tell you that, which is okay. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody has their own path to choose. And, yeah. and we've got some great folks out there. And some of my really good friends have been ones that have gone down that road and, and gone to those functional jobs or career field. Man, Dan Moss was one of the guys mm-hmm. that was the career field manager who was also uh, on the staff with me at Warrior Week when we stood up Warrior yeah, Week. That's right. Yep. Um, another guy that was on that staff was Phil Donahoe. Phil Donahoe mm-hmm. stepped outside and he became a squadron superintendent. Oh, he, did he? He was the squadron superintendent of the Red Devils at Coonsan. Okay. And he was also the squadron superintendent out at Patrick. Okay. Um, he just recently retired. Uh, Stephanie Flynn's another one that mm-hmm. went outside the career field. A guy named Kerry Taylor did it. Um, I remember Chief Taylor. He uh, he helped us stand up uh, Global Strike when I was yeah there. exactly so, yeah. So there's been a few. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a few. There hasn't been any command chiefs on the active side. There has been one on the guard side. Okay. Um, out in Hawaii, Will Parker, who uh, is part of the Hawaii Air National Guard, he was the state uh, command chief. Uh, he's still out there. He's a great guy too. Okay. So it, it's it happens. It's uh, it's really just about what you know your desire and it and some of it's timing. I'm not gonna lie to you. Mm-hmm. You got You got to get the right timing. We had an overage at the time. So I was able to jump out. Gotcha. Um, and actually, Cassie just did. Yes, uh, that's right. She went over to the recruiting, she, recruiting squadron. Yep, right. Cassie Nevis did. So. Yeah. 
So I guess I, I should have rephrased that as I've, I haven't seen a EM chief go up as, as far as you've gone up. Well, I've, I've seen a couple. Oh, of I've just been kind of fortunate, I guess. <laughs> and it's not up. I mean, we tend to think of those. Those they're just. I'm, I'm a chief, just like every other chief. Mm. It's just a position, okay. you know. So, you know, when they call me and they call me chief, I'm like, nah, we're we're the same, man. Call me by my first name or call me simp. You know, I, we're no different. We just have different jobs. Gotcha. The next. Uh thing I want to get into here is uh, what what advice would you give yourself first day, first base, right out of tech school? If you could pull yourself aside, what would you tell yourself? Listen. <laughs> yeah. Just be in receive mode. You know, I, that was one of the problems with me. I said I wasn't a good airman. I was a good cop because, I mean, I, I picked up on the stuff pretty good mm-hmm. and I understood how to process the information and execute and that sort of thing. But as far as uh, the, the things that matter, like being respectful, courtesy, you know, I struggled with those because I didn't just take time to listen. And I think humility is a big piece of that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't terribly humble and have become significantly more humble. The more you're around talent, the more humble you should become mm-hmm. because you realize you're not really that great. Was there any particular um, incidents that humbled you or was it just over time? Yeah, it was just over time, just being exposed to mm-hmm. to incredible talent. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I get humbled every single day at the with the job I'm in now because the folks that... Um, I, I have a, I work with either directly at, at the staff or the folks like um, Chief Hodges here at, mm-hmm. at Fairchild that are, or that are across 18th Air Force or even across the Air Force writ large. They're so talented. And, you know, I, I think when I was a wing command chief at Kuntown, my first one, I, and I see stuff they do, I go, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. When I was a wing command chief, I could we could have been so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much talent out there. And, and if you just stop and listen, you will absorb it instead of, being the one who always needs to be talking mm. because you don't hear things when you're constantly talking right? and you don't absorb them and it doesn't register. So that would be my advice is yeah, just stop, listen, stop and listen. Mm. That is good advice. And I have not heard that one yet. So I'll have to put that in, in my advice bank. Yeah. Another thing I want to ask you is if you could explain to everybody what a numbered air force does and why we have numbered air forces. I get that question quite a bit from my FTAC students. Yeah. I try to explain to the best of my ability, but I've never worked at a numbered air force. So now that we have the uh, 18th air force command chief, I would love to hear from your perspective, what a numbered air force is there for. Yeah. So it's a command echelon between MAGCOM and the wing. And, and it, it really kind of depends a little bit on, on which NAF you're in because some NAFs have a slightly different role. Mm-hmm. So like 18th air force used to be what's called a CNAF. In the CNAF role, that means they were in charge of being the the AF4 for whichever combatant command they were uh, subject to. So in our case, Transcom, mm-hmm. and so we were the CNAF for them, and we would provide. We were the we would coordinate all efforts underneath that the taskings that Transcom would give down. Um, now we're not a CNAF anymore, so that's rolled up to the match. So they're a CMAGCOM now, so that resides inside A3. The AOC resides in A3. AOC used to reside in 18th Air Force. Mm-hmm. Now it's all pushed up into the A3 and the MAGCOM, and they work all that stuff. So you have a four-star AF4. Okay, that's their job. What we do largely now for 18th Air Force is um, a lot of administrative control. Okay, so like everything judicial, JAG-related rolls up to us. Um, everything on the administrative side with personnel rolls up to us. And then the other thing we do a lot of is is uh, a lot of advocacy. So advocacy on the OT&E side. Organize, train, and equip. So um, as the wings, if you look across the wings, the whole enterprise, 
as there's common themes in, hey, we need this in order to better be organized, or we need this in order to better train, or to be better equipped, we need this, all those sorts of things, we advocate for those to either to the MAGCOM or to the appropriate agency where we need to get them, whether that's DLA or, AATC, or uh, AFBC or maybe AETC for training, whatever it is. We push that advocacy and prioritization in the appropriate direction in order to try and get it so that the wings are able to better fulfill their mission sets and be force providers for um, the combatant command. Mm-hmm. So that's the primary thing we do. Uh, my boss is heavily, heavily burdened with admin. Yeah, um, it's it's really remarkable how much processes through there, and uh, sometimes uh, sometimes it gets in the way of our advocacy role. You know, and, and that's really the part that we get excited about is being out doing that and talking to airmen and finding out what's what's either helping them or what's getting in their way, and then we want to knock those hindrances down, those roadblocks, get them out of the way, and then try and promote those things that are helping them. What are some of the roadblocks you'd be able to knock down? Oh my gosh, you would you make me have a list. Um, so I think some of the things, one of the great things that we've been able to to knock down over the last year and a half is um, squadron deployments for our airframes, mm-hmm. uh, in particular the C-130s. <clears throat> we've been able to get, so essentially what you would have pr- previously is you'd have uh, pieces from, say, so there's two C-130 bases primarily. There's Dias and there's Little Rock. Mm-hmm. And when it came deployment time, you would take some from this one and some from this one. And so uh, a particular squadron may have a little bit of their squadron gone, but a little bit of their squadron there. So they couldn't tackle readiness holistically, right? So the goal was to get them where they deployed as a squadron, which means also they rotate over, do the job, come back, and then they build back up together. Um, and that, that has a big impact on the training they do. Um, it has a lot to do with um, ops tempo and everybody being there together and creates more of a family bond. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so trying to get that concept of squadron deployments pushed across all our platforms. And we can't, we're not there yet, mm-hmm. but we're getting there. C-130 is one we've been very successful in. Um, you say just, platforms, you're talking about aircraft? It's, it's okay. based off aircraft primarily. So this is one of the things we've really tackled. Um, and I, you know, our C-130 at Dias... Um, they just completed their squadron deployment and have come back. And it's the first time they've had all their people and all their birds on station since 2002. Wow. It's a pretty, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that right. It was 02 or 03, but I think it's 02. Um, that's a pretty remarkable feat. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to get that in the C 17s. Uh, we're trying to get that in our 135s. Um, uh, we're working it, mm-hmm. we're getting there. So. Is that something that's being looked at, pushed out to other squadrons? I, you probably can't do that with a lot of the squadrons. It's tougher in the, the support Force, side. Yeah, the, the support side, be, it tends to be a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. to get it out there because you have the you have the function of having to provide something there at the installation as right. well. So that's why you, you get into difficulties with that. Um, are there are there any other types of squadrons that that's being looked at uh, as, a, as an option for them? Just out um, of curiosity. You know, I think over the past few years, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Um it's it's whether we can solve it. It really depends on if you have a mission. Um, this this will sound bad in some cases. If you have a, 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 a like a unitary single mission. Mm-hmm. So like a, when I was at the AGAL, the BDG, the BDG doesn't provide security at Moody Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. You have a security forces squadron on the other in the other wing at the base who provides that. Right. Their job is to not, do nothing but deploy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they train, 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 deploy. And then they do their rotation, and then they come back. 
that's what you're trying to get to. They can do that because they only have that single mission that they right. have to do. They don't have a, a in-garrison function as well. Um, so when you have those in-garrison functions, it's so much more difficult to try and figure out how to do that. Civil engineers for a long time tried to get that way because you do have the civilian workforce that can provide mm-hmm. backstop for that. But that civilian workforce isn't big enough to handle that whole right. uh, thing. If you picked up and took the whole squadron and deployed them out, while that would be awesome, it would be tough for those that are left behind. Yeah. So I spent time in, in Guam as a, on a contingency response group. And so we would deploy like that. Yeah. And I do remember it just – that was probably the most tight-knit unit I've ever been a part of um, when you're in the field and then when you come back right. from – exercises deployments whatever it was so uh, that would that would be interesting if that could be spread out a little bit farther but yeah that's probably really tough to do on some of the, some yeah. of the squadrons that we have and some of the job the, the support functions that some of these squadrons do as well yeah yeah it's it's you know if you think about air crew largely i mean it's different a little bit different in amc though because they have an internal mission to the conus mm-hmm. but like if you talk about fighters on the calf side mm-hmm. i mean what's their what are they doing every day they're not typically flying missions in support of something in the CONUS. There are some, mm-hmm. but typically what they're doing is they're going up and training every day. Right. Okay, training, 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 and then they go to wherever they're going to go and execute what they were training on. Mm-hmm. It's kind of easy for them. So. Yeah. All right, Chief. Well, I mean, you've been successful in your career, made it up to Chief, and have you know been the Command Chief at several different places. So mm-hmm. how, how would you define success as um, coming from your level? Um. So how do I define success? So I don't define success by levels. I'll tell you that right off the bat. Okay. Um, and this goes back to the story I told. I was going to tell you earlier. Um, so first base, terrible airman. Got in lots of trouble. I got an Article 15. I got a 2 EPR. Um, not You find lots of chiefs with Article 15s. You don't find too many with 2 EPRs. <laughs> um, and so I did probably everything as an airman you can do wrong. And uh, so I, I PCS'd from there and went to Holloman Air Force Base, and I got there, and, uh, and I was pretty good at softball, so I, I made the base softball team before I was actually done um, with my training. Anytime you're a cop and you go to a new base, you got to do something called Phase 1 training. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they still call it that, but that's what they called it back then, and it just it's the training that gets you used to what you're going to do there. Right. Well, I, got, I made the base softball team before I was done with that. They gave me a sheet to go get permission from my commander because they were going to ask me to be released for certain things during the year so I can play in these tournaments. Mm-hmm. Took it into the ops officer, and he said, hell no. And he said that because at the same day that I came in there with that sheet was the day that my EPR arrived from Lakenheath, which showed me as this really not good airman. He wow. goes, "I how can I let you go do that? I got airmen out there who are busting their butt doing great things, and I don't, I can't let them go, And but I'm going to let you go. So, you know, and, I, and at that point I had already, you know, I had my – extra duty. I'd done all my, paid my fines, all that stuff, you mm-hmm. know? And, uh, I said, you know what? I'd like to go see the commander on this, which was actually kind of a bold move for a one stripe airman at that at point. That time, yeah. yeah <laughs> and I said, I'd like to go see the commander with all due respect. I'm pretty sure I said that at some point. And, uh, I went in and saw the commander and I'll never forget this man. His name was major, but he was eventually Lieutenant Colonel Dave Ortiz. He was the vision you would have of the crusty Vietnam era, officer who walks around with a small cigar in his mm-hmm. mouth chewing it and talks in gravelly voice yeah. and yeah. you know probably cusses every other word and so i went in there and presented my case and he looked at that sheet and he chewed me up one side and down the other i mean broke me down and told me everything that was wrong with me and then he looked at me and he said now this is how we're gonna fix you and he gave me a plan. He said, you're an athlete? Okay, you're going to be on my Peacekeeper Challenge team. If you know anything about that, that's at that time, it was um, it, it was a competition team. You go out and you shoot, 
and you do obstacle courses and missions, and that's what you do. So my job for six months was to train to go do a competition of that with uh, five other guys. And uh, so you're going to lead my team. You're going to do that. And then you're going to work in the Army. And while you're in the Army, you're going to go to school, and you're going to get your education. You're gonna do he laid out this entire plan for me, right? And then the best part about it was he would come and check on me. You know, I'd be in the Armory at midnight, you know, nine months later, bam, 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 the door gets knocked on, and it's – it's Major Ortiz, Colonel Ortiz, and he'd say, what are you doing? You playing Nintendo? You know, I'm dating myself there, I know. Uh, I said, no, sir, I'm doing homework. He goes, good. And he'd shut the door, and that'd be it. You know, he was gruff, and he was to the point, but he cared. And so I look back on that after a few years, and I go, you know what? If I can do that for somebody else, then my career would be a success. Mm-hmm. So that's how I define success. Being able to impact somebody in it take them in a direction that they really need to go versus a direction they really don't need to go. Right. So have I been able to do that? I hope I've been able to do that. I've tried to do that my entire career. And that's why I can still keep going on because I still have those opportunities presented to be able to make an impact on somebody. So that's how I define success. Not by rank attained. Because you, I'll tell you what, you look back on that and you don't need to make chief. You don't need first sergeant diamond. You don't, you don't need any of that stuff to do that. You can be a staff sergeant who gives a damn and you can make a difference in somebody. So that sounds like that was a pretty pivotal experience. Yeah, it was. It was a pivotal character in your progression personally. So which kind of rolls me up into another question I have here is, you know, we all have days where we don't feel like doing this or that or, you know, where we're not on our game. So what, what motivates or drives you through those times to continue uh, towards your vision of what success is? So, um, I, I, you know, in, in preparing for this, I wrote down two things. I wrote down challenges and I wrote down family. Mm-hmm. And so from a challenges standpoint, I just – I just like tackling things that seem like at, at face value, I shouldn't be able to do them or that seem like, you know, uh, tackling a problem for an airman or for a unit or something, especially when I was in the Ago, I did this a lot. I got used to get unit level problems. They'd bring them in. You know, we've been trying to get this for so long. We can't get it. I'm like, who told somebody told you, no, we can't do this. <laughs> huh? Let's tackle this. That's challenging to me. That's let's see if we can push this through and get it to, because airmen need it. Um, so, so th- that's the first one. The second one is family. And that motivates me from the standpoint of being an example. Mm. Um, I never want my, my two girls to see me and think that I didn't try my best or I did something that brought, um, disgrace to our family name or to them. Mm. Um, so I always want to try and be an example for them. And, and again, I get those types of opportunities presented all the time to, to, to be a good example. So uh, on that first one, because I, I hear this a lot, and I've, I've never really asked this before. So what about that, like being told no or, hey, this can't happen, makes you just want to go, oh, oh, watch this. Like what what clicks in your head or what, what do you tell yourself when that happens to push yourself to achieve those things? Yeah, what what, what clicks? I'm like, I just don't like being told no. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> okay. Um, and it comes down, you know, I, I have a phrase that I always like to use, especially when a person tells me no. I'm like, do you have the ability – do you have the authorization to tell me yes? Because if you don't have the authorization to tell me yes, you don't have the ability to tell me no. Okay. I, I just take it as a personal affront if I feel that I can't do something. So, I, you know, talk about myself physically. The other day I was, um, I had this goal. I'm not a runner or anything. I'm, I'm very much into physical fitness. I think physical fitness should be like one of the foundations of your life. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a runner. I've never been a runner. I don't like running particularly, but I know it's necessary. But right now I have this goal. And during COVID, I've been running a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I have this goal. I want to get to a certain time frame doing three miles. 
uh, I went out a couple weekends ago and I ran a 5K and I ran it in like 2340 or something like that. I said, I, I got to beat that. And everything's, I got to beat that. Okay. So that next time, so I went out the next time and I did a 2250, right? So it's just a constant try and beat myself type thing. And and I think that kind of mindset pushes you towards doing great things for other people. If you, if you push yourself, you'll push yourself to help other people. Is that kind of a competitive? Oh yeah, competitive? absolutely. I'm ultra competitive, okay. man. If we walked up and our shoelaces were untied, I'd bet you I could tie mine faster. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So competitive nature, uh, trying yeah. to com- continuously out, out. Yeah. What motivates yourself. you though? What gets you going? What, what gets me going? Um, helping people, honestly. When I see someone, kind of like along what you said, when I see someone click, here, I'll, I'll, here's my best example. My favorite thing to do at when I worked at BMT was to put people through the tear gas chamber. Mm-hmm. When I tell everyone that, they laugh and go, oh, it must have been great to watch them suffer. No, I loved it when somebody would be afraid to go in. Yep. And you yep. can tell... The, the, the trainees that would be scared a little bit, but they would, some of them I think thought that if they acted scared, they could get out of it. And so they quickly realized, no, you're going to go do this. Um, but the, the, the couple that were just really scared, like never done anything like this before, probably never left their hometown, just, you know, they really, this was kind of their first experience and they'd be shaking before they'd go in. And I was kind of the, um, I don't know, everyone, everyone kind of would, would tease me about it. Like, oh, go send soft Sergeant Barrett. But they would send him over to me and I would just talk them through it and just say, hey, you can do this. You got this. And I would love watching them go in the first door and then come out the second door. And of 13 or 14 that would come out, um, the rest of them would be coughing and hacking and, and spitting. And that one would be smiling. And they had yeah. this just giant smile on their face. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, and I would love watching them walk by and I would stare at them and they would they just you kind of just like lock eyes and just did that head nod like, yep. And I would always go right up to them afterwards and I would always tell them, hey, don't ever think you can't do something because you just you just completely prove to yourself that you can't do it. So that's kind of what motivates me. I love taking people who or, or groups of people or rather who, who are just kind of, you know, think that they're stuck in this spot and they can't get out of it or I can't do that and kind of show them, no, you, you can. You just gotta you just gotta push past this or get through this. And so for, for me, that's definitely it. It's kind of why I want to become the career advisor. I love helping airmen try to retrain. Yeah. Um, not that you know any career field is, is terrible one over the other, but I like watching them kind of come in maybe to a job they thought was something, but they realize it's not what I want to do and helping them succeed and get to that spot they want to be in. Or I love teaching you know the classes that I teach and you have someone ask you a question. You can tell they're really struggling with an answer and you just kind of maybe tell them a story about how I messed up something as an airman. You just see that thing click and I go, oh, mm. wow, okay. Um, you know, Maybe maybe take this other route versus what you're what you're talking about. So for me, that's definitely it. Yeah, transparency and vulnerability have a profound impact on people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, like I said, I, I that was my favorite thing about about working out at BMT is just watching them be afraid, and everyone else could see that they were afraid, and then but you go in anyways, you know. And I used, I used to just really enjoy watching them come out the other side. Just a different person really probably. I tell you what, um, the second time I was down there, when I went down there as the chief, mm-hmm. watching the transformation because we would get them, you know, day, well, zero week. We would right. get them on that Friday and do our intro discussion with them. And you see these just ragtag bunch, mm-hmm. you know. And then to see them, you know, a month and a half, two months later, walking down the bomb run, proud, straight as an arrow, looking mm-hmm. sharp, respectful. It was just the most powerful thing. I loved, I loved going to parade. Yeah. There's probably nothing I loved more than, than Fridays. They were yeah. fantastic. Did you get out to the beast, um, 
the beast culminating exercises. Oh yeah, plenty. Yeah, yeah, those were great too. Um, I didn't make it to a ton of parades, but yeah, I, I, I got the same feeling watching them get their coins. Yep. And a couple of them, you know, they'd, they'd be a little teary eyed, and uh, I thought that was awesome because they just understood like what what this means now, like what yeah. you're at a you're in a different place, you're at a different level than than you were before, and, and that's just awesome. So. The, the transition, the idea of a transition <laughs> from trainee to airman is powerful. Yes. And, and meaningful. Absolutely. All right, Chief, we're going to uh, switch gears a little bit here and uh, talk about professional development because mm-hmm. as a career advisor, I really am an advocate for professional development. I was before I, I was able to do this job. Mm-hmm. So what resources do you or have you used in the past for your own professional development? Everything. I mean, you can – the great thing now about our, our availability of media is so incredible. I mean, books, podcasts. Um, just listening to, I, I tell you what I do now more than anything is I listen to some of my peers. I just, you know, they have a Facebook post that they'll put on where they'll talk X amount of time for about a topic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I learned so much about different viewpoints just by listening to that. But, you know, I think the key to professional development, and I think we need to be careful, just prof- prof- professional and personal. Both of those are equally important because we're in the business, not just of raising good airmen. We're in the business of raising good people. And we're not always, although I would say you're an airman for life, you're not always going to wear the uniform and some of the things that you need to take with you, you need to develop as you, as you're going through your career so that you're ready when you make that change Um, is, you know, don't shy away from anything, whatever presents itself, take, jump in the water Um, and, and don't be hesitant of, you know, well, I, I'm not sure I'm, I, I'd be able to complete that course, or I'm not sure I'd be able to understand it. No, what? Try it. Who cares? You know, be adventurous. So, as, as somebody who used to do that to myself, uh, missed a lot of opportunities because I was a little bit afraid or timid. So, what would you say to somebody like that? Because um, you seem to be very type A, just not afraid to go put yourself out there. But not everybody is that way right off the bat. So, what would what would be your advice to somebody who's a little bit afraid? At first? For me, everything sports is an analogy for life. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the worst thing you could do is, is stand at the plate and not swing. Mm-hmm. You know, you stand up there and you just take three pitches and you strike out. I mean, well, what good was that? Um, get up there and hack, man. The worst thing is you could strike out just like you did by doing nothing. Mm-hmm. But the best thing you could do is maybe you hit it over the fence. Yeah. And, and you find just an incredible, something that incredibly excites you and, and, and triggers your intellect or stimulates you to go in another direction and really grow as an individual. It's just get up there and hack. You know, I, I used to get that when I was playing a lot of ball. People would ask me a philosophy on, you know, well, what's your, what do you think about when you get up there to hit? Um, I get up there and swing as hard as I can. That's it. <laughs> I, I, there's no philosophy. Swing as hard as you can. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So hit the home run or strike out trying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I like that one. Don't That's hit good. singles to the backside. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> it probably doesn't feel as good either. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, along the same line, are you a reader? Do you read? Do you like to read? I am a reader. I'm a big time reader. So, but I'm going to disappoint you here, maybe. Okay. Go ahead. Though. All right. All right. Well, we'll Go see. ahead, though. I, I don't know. I read a lot of different types of books. So good for you. So we will see here. Uh, what are two to three books that you would recommend everyone should pick up and read at some point? Um, I would say for uh, a couple of things. Well, first, before I get into three books, don't let yourself be literarily stovepiped. Mm-hmm. Too often in my current position in my current profession, I get asked, uh, what leadership books should I should be reading? I'm like, if you're reading leadership books all the time, you're boring. You're boring as a person. Mm-hmm. You're not diverse. 
Um, you can't have intellectual conversations with people about other things. So read things that interest you. Okay. Yes. Should you throw something about leadership in? Yes. Should you throw something about self-development in? Yes. Should you throw these other things? But should you be throwing in a classic at some point? Yeah, you really should. Should you be throwing in a modern classic? Yes. Should you be throwing in things from modern day? Should you be throwing in articles? Should you be throwing in news? Yes. You should be reading all different things. So I'll tell you just on the book, on the trip out here today, I read three different things. And I'm reading four books currently. Um, at my desk, I come in in the morning and I read, and I read a book called uh, Man's Search, Man Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, and it's about a concentration camp survivor and, and what he learned about life. Mm-hmm. I'm reading The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is T.E. Lawrence, which is if you've ever heard of the movie Lawrence of Arabia, that's mm-hmm. what it's based off of. And it chronicles his adventures in, um, in the Arabian Peninsula during during the war in uh, World War I. Uh, I'm reading um, Ernest Hemingway's short stories. Mm-hmm. So I was reading that on the plane today. And I read T.E. Lawrence on the plane today. And then lastly, I'm reading Harry Potter. Okay. And and I'm only reading I'm reading that strictly because I want to read something different. And I love the movies. So I said, well the books probably have to be great. Mm-hmm. And my daughter who has read them all challenged me to read them. I said, okay, I'll read it. So I like to read things that just stimulate my brain. They don't all have to be leadership, but if you were going to ask me about a leadership book, I would say Legacy by James Kerr would be my number one choice. Again, sports is a metaphor for life for me, and that's a book about the New Zealand All Blacks mm-hmm. and uh, and how they apply different philosophies into their team and how it, you can take those and, and apply them into your life or to your, your team or your organization. I think it's a fantastic book. Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell is a very popular book right now, mm-hmm. which is uh, pertinent to the what's going on in the world with uh, the, the racial disparity. Um that's a fantastic book. Uh, let's see. I mean, I've read so many good ones. Leadership Lessons of a UPS Driver. That's a great book. <laughs> I never heard that one. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but, there, I mean, there's so many of them out there. But here's one Here's one people don't think about. They all want to read about leadership books. Who reads followership books? Yeah. Are there even any? I don't yeah, know. they are. I, you know, I did a search for them the other day, and I found quite a few of them. And so I think it's important to be a good follower. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about that a lot, about being a good follower. And here's some of the ideas. But very often do we recommend a book for somebody to read about followership. Yeah. So I'm going to get better at that. I'm going to read a couple followership books so that people can read those. Because I, I think we do more following than we do leading. Mm-hmm. And so we got to be good at that. And right now we've had a big change in leadership in the Air Force. It's coming in the next couple of weeks, mm-hmm. next months. And those leaders out there, the chief of staff, the chief master of the Air Force, they need us to get behind them. Mm-hmm. And they need us to support them. Um, so this is our time to be good followers. Yes. And so let's rally up the troops and uh, and go in that direction that they want to go because they need us. They can't they can't do it without us. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I don't think I've ever had anyone mention or, or suggest reading a book on followership. It is always about – they talk about followership. Oh, when you go to PME, they'll, they'll give you the steps on what you should do to be a good follower. But um, I did it. there's not a lot of delving into – if you're not good at those steps or if yeah. you're the type of person so I, that likes to argue, I, what, I, how do you fix I found you one that, that and, um, earlier I found one that appealed to me. Let me see if I can find it on here. I'll have to send it to you. I can't find it now. So, Well, maybe you can. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Chief also has a lift and learn that he does yeah. on uh, Facebook. Oh, you're watching Facebook those, page. huh? I am, yeah. So uh, maybe it'd be interesting to throw some of those out there on the, on the lift and learn page uh, for people to. to yeah, we talked to. about followership a couple weeks ago on there. Um yeah, the lift and learn thing was fun. It just kind of started from, um, you know, I, I work out all the time and I was doing a Saturday morning workout and I, I don't have as much intellectual capacity to say, to do one of these like 
10 minute videos like a lot of my peers do. Uh, they're much smarter than I am, but I do have bursts of, of pretty good ideas, I think. So like one minute is about my limit. I think I've re- that's my quota that I can do. So I figured I can do my workout and whatever I'm thinking about doing my workout, I can do a quick one minute, two minute video on that and kind of share it. And hopefully that stimulates some thoughts in somebody. But uh, and then somebody tagged it as lifting. I'm like, oh, I kind of like that. I, yeah. Well, and that's good too, because, um, you know, pe- people will sit and watch a one or two minute video. Yeah. I know myself, if it goes over three or four, I kind of, yeah, I'm not the next thing after that. Yeah. So I think, I think one or two minutes is a good, it's a good time. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so along with this, um, you know, reading books and are, is there anything that you are deliberately learning now that you're been focusing on? Um, I've been focusing a lot on understanding the problems of our, uh, African American airmen. Mm-hmm. We've had a ton of conversation about what's going on out there and the things that maybe we were oblivious to. And, and, and I, Anybody who sits there and tells you that this stuff doesn't happen and that they are crazy. These things happen and you just may not recognize it. Um, but when you hear it from someone who's lived it you and you think, man, you do a little self-reflection. You go, maybe there was times when I unknowingly contributed to that. Not because you had something malignant in your heart or in your intent, just because you didn't realize that this could be perceived another way. Because, you know perception is in the eye of the beholder. We've already heard that. That's very true in these types of uh, situations. There are a lot of times people are saying things or they um, refer to something or they have an opinion on something that it's just based out of how they were raised or how they um, came up and what was normal in that environment, not realizing that that can be interpreted to mean something totally different to somebody else. Um, So I've spent a lot of time learning about that recently. I every day am trying to learn about patience because I have two teenage daughters. And so that's a, that's a really important thing for me. And that it, it transcends into the workplace too. The more patient you are, the better decisions you make, the better advice you give. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, yeah. um, I'm working on my PhD. So, oh, um, wow. yeah, I want to get my PhD before and, I read. And what, what, what are you studying? History. Okay. Yeah. I want to be a history teacher when I, when I retire. So what level do you want to teach at? I want to teach college. I don't want to deal with, I, I can't deal with young kids. <laughs> I've okay. done that. I've got that. I've done that. I get marked off on that. I'm certified. Yeah. Uh, so I want to teach college and I, I really like to teach online because then it's uh, from a distance. I can do it on my back porch or out of the beach or whatever. Yeah. Any particular, uh, what's your, what, his, what, what, um, so, uh, area of military history is my, my master's degree is in military history, but, um, my PhD will probably just be in base history mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, I'm I'm okay with teaching whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one question I do want to ask is, and what something you just said kind of sparked is, what what are with, with the racial discussion that's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the, the lessons that you have learned in your in your conversations that you had? Um. So you know, kind of what I talked about before that there's oftentimes we just don't realize it that we're saying things. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. I played sports my whole life, and I played sports in the military as well, and. We were very comfortable with each other and we would harass each other and tease each other and razz on each other. And we probably did so in ways that were probably, if somebody on the outside was looking in, they'd probably go, oh my God, I can't believe they're talking to each other like that. But we were so comfortable with each other that it was okay. And I'd be, I think I would be uh, ignorant if I said I probably didn't say something like that outside of that context. Mm-hmm. And in the understanding that in my brain, the way we all interacted, that was okay. But the reality to somebody else outside that circle is like, yeah, that's that's offensive, man. You can't say that. And and it, and it goes back to this part about being, you know, having intent. There was no harmful intent there because that's just what we did, you know. And I think that we're all probably guilty of that. Every single one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to get better at it. We just being understanding of our environments and and 
that words matter to people mm-hmm. and, and it, they can hurt them. And the more we know each other, the more we talk about things on the front end, you know, establishing one of the things we, we talked about was how do we set conditions to have these tough conversations? Well, you set these conditions way before the tough conversations need to happen. Those conditions are set by knowing your people and taking time to talk to them when at the moment they arrive in your organization or on your team or in your family, you wrap your arms around them, you let them know that they're on your team and you're always going to take care of them and they're, you know, you give you give a damn about them. Mm-hmm. That sets the conditions and that's way before. So when those times come up where you have to have tough conversations and you do it on a regular basis, the condition's already there. People feel comfortable to do it. It's not genuine. If you try and do it and go, hey, listen, everybody sit down. We're going to talk about this so that we can talk about this. That's not genuine. And people see right through that. So um, you have to do that all the time. And I think we had gotten away from that. So building those kind of cultures where that's allowed and that's understood and that's accepted and it's expected, not just accepted, it's expected that we are able to talk to each other uh, in, a, in a way that we get to know each other and we understand each other. All right, Chief. Well, we, have, we actually made it through all these uh, topics here. So the last one that I would like to do is uh, leaving the listeners with three takeaways that you'd like to put out there for everybody. Well, one of them we kind of talked about is um, leading by following. That was the first one I would say. Kind of going back to what I said before, we, we follow. And, and actually, it goes back and forth. We lead and we follow at every level. But I, you know, sports is a metaphor for life. I said it before. <laughs> so you look at a baseball team, right? And you have a starting pitching staff, right? Well, a starting pitcher only in 162 games, although they're not going to play that this year, unfortunately. Um, a starting pitcher only pitches about 31, 32 games a year. Mm. And when they're in there, when they start and they get the, they get the ball, they are in charge. They are leading the team. They are in control. But that's 20% of the time. What are they doing the other 80% of the time? Mm. They are supporting the rest of the team. They are, you know, providing the other starting pitchers, watching them, watching their mechanics, making sure they're looking for any kind of flaws or any tells in their in their delivery. Um, they're talking to hitters on what to expect from other pitchers, and you know, they are in a support mode. They are a follower at that mm-hmm. point, and so constantly thinking of how you can support leadership by being a good follower, and, and by proxy learning good leadership, and uh, as you go through that. Second one I would say is embracing failure. It's okay to embrace failure. Mm. When you go in the gym and you want to get stronger, you go in there and you work out till failure, mm-hmm. right? Why do we not apply that to life more often? Fear. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm embarrassed. I don't want yeah. anybody to see that I failed. Why? You know, we do exercises and we're worried about in an exercise what grade we're going to get. Who cares? It's an exercise. It's practice. Our, yeah. our job is to fail at that. And I'll tell you what, if we're not pushing ourselves so hard that we get to failure, how do we know how far can, we can go? Mm. We don't. How do we truly know what our capabilities are if we don't go till we can fail? Um, so I, you know, finding ways to fail and, and not making their re- repercussions. Obviously, there are times that are no-fail situations. Right. But that's why we train hard. Mm-hmm. And that's why we exercise. And that's why we work at it and push ourselves as hard as we can when, when we have those times. So that when it comes to the no-fail situation, we don't. Um, and then lastly, I'd say one of the most important things, I get asked a lot, um, what are your, what's your leadership philosophy? And the, the number one thing I always give for leadership philosophy is lead yourself first. And leading yourself first talks about courtesy, respect, discipline. Those three things, I think, are the foundation to leading yourself. You know, physical fitness is a big piece of that. that, that the idea of keeping yourself physically fit is rooted in discipline. 
And if you can do that and constantly enhance that discipline, it'll carry over in other aspects of your mm-hmm. life. It's also about promise keeping to me. I make a promise to myself. I'm going to get up at this time. I'm going to go work out. And then I keep it. If I can't do that, how am I going to do that for somebody else? And then courtesy, just treating people with respect. Most of the problems that we have in the Air Force or in the, in the world today are built or the root of them is lack of courtesy and lack, uh, lack of respect towards other people. We change that. We change a whole lot of other things. Um, and then constantly feed your mind. <clears throat> never stop feeding your mind. Never stop learning. So those are the things that I would pass on. Leadership by followership. Embrace failure and lead yourself. Roger that, Chief. All right. Well, um, thank you very much for sitting down today. I know when you come up to these, do these visits, I'm sure everybody is trying to get some time with you. So. No, nobody does. Thank you for <laughs> for making me feel wanted. <laughs> I, I doubt that, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and talk to me and, and um, put your uh, information out there for everybody. And then um, I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, when you were the, the group chief down at BMT when I was there. Uh, you did a lot for us to help us move forward in the training that we were trying to do and make some changes. Um, and then uh, since you've been up, up at the 18th Air Force, I know we've seen a lot of good things come down. And then I've, I've just never – I've never personally talked to anyone that was stationed with you or worked for you that had anything but awesome things to say about – He was about to say bad you. things. <laughs> no, bad things. working with you or for you. I know when you, when you were coming to BMT, all the emergency managers that had worked for you were all pumped that you were coming down there. So um, I know I appreciate it and, and other folks that I've worked with appreciate your – your leadership and uh, you know your, just how you do things. So thank you very much. Yeah, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for having me on here. But most importantly, thanks for what you're doing here. This is important. Uh, not it's not important getting me on here and talking to me. It's important getting messages out to airmen that are positive and that can uh, make them grow or that can present opportunities to them. That's what's important. And and then doing the what you're doing as a career assistant advisor and shaping people's lives that's that's important stuff and uh keep keep at that you know maybe maybe you got first sergeant in your future or something like that <laughs> it doesn't matter you don't need you don't need those titles in order to make that difference as you know like i was talking about earlier but so keep doing that and uh and get other people to understand that and then so there's just multiple ripples in the pond and it goes all over the place so. well thank you appreciate that you bet brother uh but that's all i've got everybody so until next time well that's it for this episode of the refuel team fair child podcast If you have show ideas, people you'd like to hear from, or if you'd like to be on the podcast, contact us at fafbcaa at gmail.com.